Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, former U.S. Rep. Peter Meyer joins to discuss why he's launching a Republican U.S. Senate bid, despite being targeted in 2022 after voting to impeach President Donald Trump. Dr. Rob Davidson, the executive director of the Committee to Protect Health Care, describes why his advocacy organization is backing the Reproductive Health Act legislation, which lifts multiple regulations on abortion service providers. And Warren Christopher, an ex-supporter of state GOP Chair Christina Caramo, believes the Michigan Republican Party is sitting in the parking lot and can't find the keys when it comes to election organization efforts. Now, here's MERS reporter Samantha Schreiber and editor Kyle Malin. Thank you so much, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. We are warming things up with former U.S. Representative Peter Meyer, a 35-year-old Grand Rapids Republican and Iraqi war veteran who, around 6.30 a.m. today, became the 10th Republican to file for the 2024 U.S. Senate race. Now, thank you for joining us, Peter. And I do have to ask, is your logo paying an homage to the former Meyer logo? I got to say, it's a little bit hard you know, if I spell my name in lowercase, it looks like the current logo. If I make it all caps, it looks like the former logo. So, you know, I think uh, I'm not trying to run away from my family business, which I'm proud of. I'm not actively involved in it. But, you know, I think if we were trying to pay more of an homage, there'd probably be an apostrophe S at the end there to reflect the true spelling. <laughs> Myers. <laughs> it, it's very striking, though. I mean, the, the, they are the same, basically, except for a couple color combination changes. Was that trademarked? Uh, did you, or was there any trademark issues? Or since they abandoned the logo, it was kind of free game? You know, I think it's, um, well, I, I won't weigh into uh, into kind of legal dynamics here. But, uh, you know, there's you know all sorts of fair use and uh, other considerations. But, you know, at the end of the day, our focus was on, um, you know, being able to, to put something out there that I think folks will uh, resonate. Do you only do your grocery shopping at Meijer or do you sometimes cheat and go to Kroger? Not Kroger. We don't have any Krogers near us. You know, obviously you got to see what the competition is up to, you know, so I'm not going to say that I haven't occasionally swung into a Whole Foods or a Trader Joe's or a DNW or, uh, you know, other uh, potential competitors. But, um, you know, I certainly buy the vast majority, the vast majority of our grocery spending uh, would be in a place that is not surprising at all to you. Okay, so let's let's get to the real questions now. What that was also a real question. Now you were targeted <laughs> in the 2022 primary election after voting to impeach past President Donald Trump following the January 6, 2021 riots in the U.S. Capitol. After losing your primary in your House seat to the Trump endorsed candidate, why do you think 2024 will be different than 2022? You know, I think it's very different in a multi-candidate field, not the least of which is that it's harder for Democrats to come in and, you know, try to try to sabotage the race. The former president, I think, gave $5,000 to my primary challenger. And, you know, the Democrats spent, you know, close to 100 times that and kind of uh, uh, helped to boost him over the finish line there. But at the end of the day, I mean, I'm just I can't stand back. I can't sit down. I can't stand aside, you know, while our country is facing the challenges that we are. Uh, and while I feel I have something to offer in trying to right that ship and a, being able to both connect, you know, where we need to go, trying to offer a long term vision, you know, be young enough to still be around to see that, uh, but at the same time, know how we need to get there and to try to communicate that. 
right? I think folks are sick of everything just being a black and white referendum. You know, they, we need to be focusing on on the substance of issues, but also not getting distracted by just what the symptoms are, what the manifestations are, but really focus on fixing those underlying causes. You know, that was frankly my experience in Washington was seeing a lot of a lot of frustration and understandable frustration from people, but trying to say, hey, the reason why you are seeing this, you know, is not just because of this issue as it is, it's because of everything led down the line. The reason why your representatives are unable to actually fix the legislation or fix the policies that are hurting you is because their power has been stripped away from them or they've given that power, you know, to the executive branch, to the administrative state, to the bureaucracy, to the president. A lot of those fixes are a lot less sexy. They're harder to fit on a bumper sticker. I'm still trying to figure out how to package, you know, subsidiarity and uh, separation of powers and legislative supremacy, you know, into something that can go in a 30 second ad, you know, but the reality is if you don't fit those underlying structural components, everything else is just going to be theater. And the frustration that people feel at sending folks to DC who are patently unable to change anything and then feeling disillusioned and disenfranchised, you know, that feeling is real, right? So let's actually fix it and address it. You mentioned the, the field, or we mentioned earlier, the number of candidates who are looking to uh, take on this seat here, uh, up to 10, presuming, I don't know how many actually get the signatures. I mean, let's say five or six, but outside of the size of the field, what makes 2024, you think, going to be different than 2022? Yeah, I mean, the big difference is we're looking at open seat, first off. Um, number two, you know, it'll be a presidential year, which should have very, very high turnout. Um, you know, those are the two biggest dynamics that I think are important. And and I realize I'm jumping straight forward, you know, into a general, you know, but if you don't have a path and a, a prospect of winning that general election, everything else is just for show. Everything is, else is just a, a fun exercise and going out and talking to people, which I love doing. Right. But the goal should be on making sure that we can get have a good chance of having the first Republican senator from Michigan, you know, in, in 24 years. Massachusetts and Delaware have had Republican senators more recently than Michigan has. And it's going to take a lot to overcome that. You got a, a folks in D.C. who think that Michigan elects Republican governors. They don't elect Republican senators. And you have a national environment that's going to be difficult because at the end of the day, our primary is very late. It's in August. Being through that primary is going to be a factor of of having a ground game, of meeting people where they are, of having those conversations, of outworking and out competing the other candidates. You know, not just who can throw up the most TV ads, you know, or who is going to kind of astroturf in, you know, the presumption of support. I welcome yeah. tough conversations. I love getting around this state. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that component of the race, frankly, more than anything else. So I have Twitter pulled up right in front of me and the Michigan GOP just put out this statement um, saying, unfortunately, an overzealous intern posted a negative comment regarding a candidate that does not reflect the position of the Michigan GOP. The negative comment was towards you, uh, reminding everyone on Twitter that you did vote to impeach Donald Trump. What forgot you about that one. Yeah. <laughs> what is your game plan for connecting with that overzealous member who is still a very active person of the Michigan GOP community? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, are you talking about that intern in particular or are you talking about the uh, the electorate more broadly? Just, just the electorate more broadly. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I was up on Mackinac for the, the conference. I actually thought it was a lot of fun. Um, 
and part of the reason why I jumped into this race is I've been talking to folks. I mean, when I say across the political spectrum on the right right now, I really mean across the political spectrum on the right. Like there are, uh, put it this way, a lot of the people who have been encouraging me to run for this race were not folks who had supported me in my primary last go around and folks who had either supported my challenger or vigorously opposed me. Um, and some of the people who were my biggest backers, you know, take the view you know, just wait until 2026, wait a little bit further down the line. You know, we just need to let all this Trump stuff, you know, sort itself out. And I think on both extremes, you have folks whose vision for the party is one that's a lot more narrow, that's a lot less inclusive. And that involves purging people who have differing disagreements rather than saying, hey, the strength of a party is our ability to have disagreements and not let those trip into division. Right. Disagreement is contrasted with areas that you agree. Division is when you let those disagreements get in the way of everything else. And I think, frankly, that's what worries me is seeing, you know, a Republican civil war where the only victors are going to be Democrats. I mean, they've been laughing their way to the bank while Republicans have been tearing each other apart. Now, that has changed a little bit since, you know, some of the anti-Semitism and, and the consequences of some of the crazy things that have gone on on campus are really coming home to roost. And so I don't want to get in their way while they're making those mistakes. Uh, but frankly, we need to be looking at how the Republican Party, and I, I'm saying we, not necessarily the Mears podcast, but Republicans need to be focusing on how the party gets to a point where we can get back to a position of of having majorities in our state legislature, where we're capable of electing somebody who you know can win a U.S. Senate seat, and we're also focusing on building out the institution and organization, you know, not so we can leverage it against people we disagree with on you know two or three out of a hundred issues. You know, but so we can get to a point where conservative policies are enacted, because if your party isn't doing that, then what the hell is it good for? I mean, what's the point? I want to also ask you about something else we saw on Twitter here. The uh, National Republican Senate uh, Committee, the executive director, Jason Thielman, uh, was on um, Politico, said Peter Meyer isn't viable in a primary election. And there's worry that if Meyer were nominated, the base would not be enthused in the general election. What's your response to that? Yeah, it's it's very funny. I had a meeting with them, and they said simultaneously, um, you know, this this seat isn't winnable. You know, so what's the point? Well, why are there balloons going up? <laughs> we got balloons coming up here. All right, at least I'm not a I'm not a cat or upside down. Um, <laughs> you know, they, I mean, they said simultaneously that the seat's not winnable. Uh, and by the way, if you're the nominee, you know, then like it, it, we have less of a chance of winning the seat, which. I get it, right? You throw everything at the wall when you're trying to dissuade someone from getting in. I think they had a similar conversation uh, with James Craig, you know, trying to encourage them. To put it mildly, I mean, I'm not the favorite of folks in DC. I'm not the favorite of folks who think that everything is going great and we just need more of the same. Uh, or I'm not a fan of the folks who are, want to ignore that we're in this moment, right? I, I mentioned where the party needs to go. I mean, I don't believe the Republican Party should go back to the pre-Trump moment. I think there was a reason why there was dissatisfaction and frustration with that. At the same time, you know, where we are right now has not necessarily led to the commanding electoral victories that allow us to enact an agenda. I think we need to take the strength of some of the organizational components we had in the pre-Trump era and get some of the people who left you know, in that era to come back on side. And at the same time, recognize the strength, vitality, and energy that a lot of the members of President Trump's coalition have brought into the party, because that is also an essential part. So I, I reject those who think we need to purge one side or the other. And I also reject those who say, you know, it's going to be a simple answer that we either go back to the way things are, or we change nothing about the way things are currently going. 
When you look at this pre-existing roster of Republican candidates, you have James Craig, you have Mike Rogers, you have Nikki Snyder, who's going to tap into the grassroots conservative moms. Why don't you believe that this is a strong roster? Well, I, I think it is a strong roster. Ultimately, I think every candidate who's in that primary is going to have something to offer. I think we've heard more from some than from others. And as you mentioned, there are 10 folks. You know, the early stages are going to be making sure to get those signatures. And we saw how that tripped up a number of candidates in the 2022 gubernatorial primary. I mean, getting at least 15,000 validated signatures is not an easy task, right? So there's going to be initial organizational challenges that any candidate's going to have to have before they're able to more fully flesh out issues. Uh, but I frankly think that the more folks who are who are reaching out to Michigan voters and communicating with them, the better. You know, I don't believe that there is a, a benefit in trying to winnow down uh, and trying to have, you know, the decision for who should even appear, you know, on that ballot be, you know, decided by folks in D.C. You know, I'm known for that impeachment vote, but I've been very critical of efforts to go after President Trump. And most recently, I didn't use the same verbiage that I described these efforts on on Twitter, which I think was uh, ass hattery was the phrase that I used. That wasn't in the amicus brief we filed in the Western District of uh, Michigan on Friday, uh, but it's strenuously opposing efforts to bar Donald Trump from even appearing on Michigan ballots, you know, by reinvigorating the 14th Amendment, you know, Clause 3, um, you know, discrimination against, you know, those who have allegedly engaged in insurrection. I mean, I will call balls and strikes. I will defend folks when they're being unfairly maligned. I'll give credit where credit is due uh, rather than just you know, being an opportunist who's focused on living into the political polarization. Now, that's going to get me a lot of folks who love it when I do one thing and hate it when I do the other. And you hope they see the thing they like and, you know, not the other way around. But um, I think more often than not, those are conversations that we need to have. And we need folks who are willing uh, to not just always take the easy path. How much is it going to cost to win the U.S. Senate primary? And how much is it going to cost to win the general? And how much are you willing to put in of your own money to make it happen? Yeah. So if we look at the 2022 cycle, um, you know, both John James and Gary Peters raised, excuse me, 2020 cycle, uh, John James and Gary Peters both, you know, kind of raised and spent in hard dollar close to 50 million. Um, you know, John obviously had, you know, having run such a strong campaign in 2018, you know, avoided the primary in 2020. And so that gave an easier runway to be able to, you know, not have to make that pivot in the general. And every single Republican in the state of Michigan should be envious of the way that the Democrats can kind of close ranks and, you know, run their general election campaigns a year out while Republicans are having to make that pivot, you know, right around Labor Day. But that having been said, I mean, it's going to be massively expensive, right? I mean, Gary Peters is the head of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. This is not a seat that Republicans need to win to take back the majority. Uh, so, I mean, the, the NRSC, you know, for all their, you know, little snide remarks, I mean, they're going to view this as well. If it comes around to mid-September and we feel optimistic, then we'll go for it. But otherwise, you know, there's not going to be cavalry coming uh, versus the DSCC. I mean, this is a seat they cannot afford to lose. I mean, if they lose Michigan, taking back a majority anytime soon gets exponentially more difficult. So yeah, it, it will be a a novel effort uh, or a novel uh, moment on the political expenditure side of the house. And, you know, I mean, we're going to do what it takes in order to be successful here. The amount of money you're going to put in, uh, is it fair to say what? We 10? are going to do what it takes to be successful here. 
All right. I had to try I know, again. Kyle. I know, Kyle. Yeah. Uh, do you want the budgetary projections? Because I'm, I'm not sure that I can share this. Right now, the perceived Democratic frontrunner is current Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who is your former colleague. Having worked with her, why do you think she's wrong for the job? You know, I mean, we worked closely together on some issues where there was some bipartisan agreement. I mean, we worked on um, some toxic exposure for veterans around burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, we uh, had collaborated on issues relating to national security where there was some agreement, you know, and I, I found her to be someone who was good to work with. That having been said, at the end of the day, uh, I think she differed one vote with Nancy Pelosi the entire time that we were in office. You know, I think my frustration with folks is if you are so concerned about staying in the good graces of your party that you subordinate maybe what you actually think or believe about an issue, um, if you are not going to demonstrate that you'll be an independent voice when you're in office, especially in a, a swing or even you know, arguably a, a light blue or purple state like Michigan, you know, I think we deserve people in office who are going to put you know, their oath and their responsibility first rather than looking always to their party and not wanting to stand out even when that acts in contravention to what they truly believe. We've talked a lot of politics. I just want my last question that I have, I want to do a little policy. I wanted to get your thoughts on what's going on in uh, Israel right now in Gaza. What, what's, what do you think is the best path to get some kind of peace there? I mean, I, I wish we had more support from some of our Gulf Cooperation Council allies, you know, a lot of the folks who were on the Abraham Accords. I'm, I'm very worried if they grow skittish and are overly concerned about their own domestic politics than on regional safety and stability. Uh, and I also wish, you know, that we were holding Iran more to account. I feel like both um, the Biden administration and a lot of the folks who were in it who, you know, had kind of cut their teeth and rose up in the Obama administration, those folks want to see the best in Iran at every turn. And I, I'm not afraid if there's an opportunity to to try to move the ball forward and something that'll be aggressive. Great. You know, swing for the fences, take a risk. But when a country like Iran has demonstrated its malign intent time and time and time and time again, and you keep getting surprised, like shame on you. Right. The other thing that I think is important for us to remember, I mean, 1400 people were killed in that Hamas attack in some of the most incredible barbarism and brutality that we have seen. I mean, really in modern history, like between the means of death and the uh, the scale of, of the tragedy, the only recent comparables apart from 9-11 are ISIS attacks, you know, on, on you know, cities in Iraq. I mean, this is just I think we're, we, we've not become numb to it, but it's hard to it's hard to just really appreciate the brutality and the scale of the horror that we saw and the way in which that will forever change the Middle East. So bottom line, I mean, we're in a moment of uncertainty. There are any number of ways in which this could spin outside of control if you don't have folks who are both thinking long term, but also they need to focus that Americans, America's number one strength that we can offer in that area is going to come through deterrence. It's going to come from ensuring that there are consequences to our adversaries and that they cannot hope that, well, maybe if we uh, you know, do this or do that and message it in the right way that the U.S. will back down. Right. That is how you ensure that folks press their own advantage and only cause further instability, further chaos and further death and destruction, none of which is in America's interest. It's not in the interest of any of our allies in the region uh, and will ultimately set us back decades in some of the progress that we've seen recently in terms of normalization and stability in the Middle East.
you do see the present day Republican community becoming divided over the conversation about sending money to foreign wars. Uh, you see that especially with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, what is the position that you take to this? Yeah, it's funny. Very early on, because that uh, the conflict occurred, you know, in in my my second year in office, uh, and very early on, you know, I was accused of being too dovish because I was opposed to the U.S. implementing no-fly zones or sending troops or or kind of um, you know kind of boots on the ground type of support to the Ukrainians, um, and and now that position has become hawkish as some of those folks who were out for blood very early on, you know, kind of turned tail and did a one eighty. I mean, my view is that it, it's is in America's interest to not have sovereign countries, especially those on the periphery of, of NATO and the European Union, being overrun um, and, and gobbled up and integrated into hostile states like Russia. Um, it is in our interest to see Russia defeated so that we do not have a strengthened you know, Sino-Russian alliance that can then go more aggressively into Taiwan. Uh, and it's also, frankly, in our interest to be able to do that in ways that are you know, low cost to the U.S., such as sending old military equipment, you know, some of which we value at our acquisition cost 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, um, but a good amount of which is set to be retired, recycled, you know, or scrapped. I think it's in our interest to be sending those to the Ukrainians. Now, where I have frustrations on that issue uh, is I think Europe should be carrying much more of the weight. Uh, if they're skittish about spending military support, then they should be the ones carrying much more of the burden when it comes to economic support, civil society support, and other ways in which the U.S. is currently supporting Ukraine. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, these are not easy issues that will be solved you know, by ping-ponging from one extreme to the other. I think you see when you have foreign policy issues that enter into a partisan political process is also and everyone tries to fit it into their frame of, of some pre-existing narrative when each of these has complexity, each of these needs to be viewed for what it is. And this is, I think, probably my biggest frustration with the Biden administration. Each case, each you know, scenario where we as the U.S. are supporting one side or the other or making an affirmative case, we need to be outlining how that is aligned and in the U.S. long-term national interest. Now, I believe that seeing the Ukrainians defend their territory is in that. I believe that ensuring Taiwan is independent is in that. Uh, there are questions of, of how far we're willing to go that are going to be very difficult and that, you know, it may not be in the interests of this country to have our adversaries know what our full playbook is and what our threshold and willingness is. Um, but making sure that we're coming from a position of strength and deterrence means we hopefully never have to find that out. And I think that is where, at the end of the day, you know, the Biden administration's botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, the way in which they seek to shrink from our obligations abroad, the way in which they allow themselves to get strung up and, and tongue-tied around our adversaries instead of speaking clearly and with one voice is only leaving the U.S. in a more dangerous position in the world and one that we need to reverse and reverse quickly. Former U.S. Rep. Peter Meyer, thank you so much for taking time during your first day as a Republican U.S. Senate candidate to join the MERS Monday podcast. I always appreciate it. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Samantha.
Joining us for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast is emergency physician, Dr. Rob Davidson, the executive director of the Committee to Protect Healthcare, a policy advocacy organization with more than 10,000 medical professionals involved. Dr. Davidson is also a past 2018 Democratic congressional candidate from West Michigan. We have Dr. Davidson on today to discuss the Reproductive Health Act legislation in Michigan, which was approved by party line votes last late night on November 1st in the House, with several modifications being made. The package will continue to eliminate hospital-grade regulations on abortion clinics, remove detailed reporting mandates, permit abortion insurance coverage from private providers without an optional rider being preemptively purchased, and will allow for college students to reserve abortion referrals on campus. But dropped from the original RHA proposal are attempts to allow for Medicaid abortion coverage and to eliminate the 24-hour waiting period ahead of abortion services. Uh, Dr. Davidson, first off, thank you for joining us today. And also, can you please share candidly with our listeners how the OBGYNs and the abortion providers involved with your committee are feeling about what will likely be the final RHA product from the state legislature here in Michigan? It's good to be here, Sam. Thanks. Um, I I think, uh, you know, our official position, I think the way they're feeling is uh, this is work that needed to be done, right? These are good steps and there's more work to do. Like you said, the, the pieces that were included uh, in what has now passed the House and expected to, to go through and get to the governor are very important. You know, not allowing ins- private insurance to cover abortions uh, and requiring people to get so-called rape insurance uh, was a huge barrier to affordability and, and access to abortions. And when people voted for Prop 3, you know, the people of Michigan overwhelmingly said, we think abortion should be a right enshrined in the Constitution. Unfortunately, there were uh, laws that had been put up uh, over the past several decades that made access to abortions uh, more difficult. So peeling that away, uh, you know, critically important. Like you said, uh, a few things got dropped that that we all need to keep working on. Uh, we believe that no matter where you get your insurance, whether it is private insurance or public insurance like Medicaid, um, abortion care is health care and it should be included. And, the, and that is a big barrier for, for poor women in the state of Michigan who are trying to access this uh, necessary care. You know, the 24-hour waiting period is, again, uh, another barrier that was put up so that it just makes it more challenging. People having to take more time off of work, you know, having to comply with getting uh, the mandatory education. I heard someone testify at a House committee uh, that they were having an abortion for a pregnancy they desperately wanted, but there were uh, just horrible uh, complications with the pregnancy that was going to make the fetus unviable once they were born. And they had to watch a video and read handouts on adoption and on parenting. And it was so traumatic to this woman who wanted more than anything to have kids, had an abortion and ended up having two healthy kids after that and and had the family that she wanted. And so these are just unnecessary barriers that we'll keep working on. You know, there's another year, another Congress that hopefully we can get this done. Uh, Doctor, I wanted to ask you about the uh, response from uh, advocates in favor of this legislation, and in in particular, the vitriol against Representative Karen Witsit, the uh, Democrat out of Detroit. The statement that came out from supporters said, we condemn the actions of Representative Karen Witsit. I thought that was remarkable that they specifically called out a member of the legislature. You don't typically see that. Why, Why were advocates so 
upset, do you believe that things like the Medicaid funding of abortions was not included in this package, that they would call out Karen Witsit like that? Well, I mean, I will let those advocates and those organizations speak for themselves. Um, it, it is true that uh, Representative Witsit was the lone voice on the Democratic side that was opposed to Medicaid funding abortions here in Michigan. It is also true that poor women need to have abortion coverage, and it shouldn't matter where you get your insurance, whether it's private or whether it's through your employer or whether it is uh, through Medicaid. So I agree that this needs to change. Uh, I uh, certainly would not condemn a representative myself, but I would love to spend time with that representative, try to try to you know let them know exactly why this is so critically important. And, and then again, you know, we'll, we'll live to fight another day. We'll continue to fight for this. Uh, but for the specifics of different organizations having specific comments about specific people, that's certainly up to them and, and them to defend those comments. Our understanding is that with Indiana in particular, having a restrictive abortion policy now that um, women are coming to Michigan if they're over by the border, and that is creating a, a little bit of a hardship then for them if they have the 24-hour waiting period and then to not have it covered by a, by a Medicaid, that's got to put some pressure then on the provider because you don't want to turn somebody away from health care. Um, but on the other hand, if they're not paying for it, that's an expense that somebody else is eating. It is. And certainly people from Indiana wouldn't be covered under Michigan Medicaid anyway. So that part wouldn't apply. But the 24-hour rule absolutely applies. And we've heard stories from women who uh, flew from other states, not just across the border, and weren't aware of the 24-hour rule and, and ended up you know, having a return ticket the same day, that clinic found the resources to put them up in a hotel to help them change their flight. And so they could get the care they needed. So, I mean, the reality is, as healthcare providers, we are going out of our way, bending over backwards for all number of aspects of care for our patients, whether it's abortion or ability to afford prescription drugs or any other aspect of care that's just too expensive. Um, and so those clinics and those individuals will keep doing that. But I, I would love it if our legislature would uh, make it easier, <laughs> easier on the patients and easier on those providers to provide, to provide the care. Because this package deals with lifting requirements, for example, the requirement that an abortion procedural facility be a freestanding surgical outpatient site, uh, also lifting reporting mandates to the state's health department. From a medical perspective, why do these make sense? Well, I think they, those particular restrictions were put in place to make it harder to get an abortion. We have a very robust regulatory uh, apparatus set up in Michigan for uh, outpatient health care. And I think within that, uh, within that regulatory framework, abortion clinics will be regulated. And patient safety, I heard stories of some clinic in Muskegon who had all these different violations. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a dermatologist in Grand Rapids who was reusing uh, uh, sutures. And that person was found out, right? That was, uh, they were prosecuted. They, I believe, lost their license to practice medicine in Michigan, but we didn't have a whole set of framework around uh, plastic surgeons that dealt with that. Uh, they were clearly violating medical ethics and, and state law and, and, and requirements, and they were held to task. I think the same thing will be true for abortion clinics. They shouldn't be held to a higher standard. They should be held to the same standard. And frankly, it is somewhat flummoxing to know why we have to have abortion clinics altogether. I mean, abortion is healthcare. I mean, this these are procedures that can happen in doctor's offices and clinics that aren't just specifically for abortion. 
you know, we don't have appendix clinics, we don't have vasectomy clinics. They happen in the under the guise of of healthcare writ large. Um, and so, yeah, again, I, I I applaud them getting rid of those trap laws because they were just simply barriers put up to make it harder to get the care that, that folks need. I remember Senator Kavanaugh told me during a scrum after the Senate vote on these bills, and it was ultimately, how do you put abortion under the same regulatory umbrella as a dentist's office? And someone on the opponent side would be, oh, well, getting an abortion and getting a dental procedure seem like two very, very different things. Uh, could you provide us some more insight on this from a medical perspective of why it makes sense to take this leap of changing the message around abortion? I mean, there are certainly different procedures, but it's it's all about, you know, what is the risk? I mean, certainly some of these clinics, uh, the vast majority of abortions now are medication abortions. You know, they're pill abortions. Uh, but even procedural abortions, it, it isn't surgery. I, I sat in a uh, meeting about it was a ranking member, I forget the name, said, well, if you know, as far as I know, anytime you have something done on your body, that's surgery. And that kind of proved the point that politicians shouldn't be making medical decisions because it is not true that anytime you have something done to your body, it's surgery. Surgery is surgery. Surgery is actually cutting someone open. Uh, that's not what abortions are. Uh, these are these are office-based procedures that people get done under the guise of, of having a miscarriage. You know, that happens every day in the state of Michigan. Um, and so it should be no different with abortions. You know, I, I don't know that we should compare it to dentistry or compare it to other procedures. But, you know, I, my daughter had her wisdom teeth taken out. That was actual surgery, cutting her gums, extracting teeth, giving her sedation in an orthodontist's office, you know, um, or in a oral surgeon's office. Sorry. They're just different procedures. And, and this is why the providers who provide the care and then the regulatory framework under the guise of HHS and, uh, you know, the state medical board, that that should all be involved. But legislators in Lansing, you know, who have political agendas, um, who have people in their ears, you know, on, on the other side, advocating against the ability of people to get abortion, they shouldn't be the ones deciding, you know, the, the medical part. We had a couple more subjects that we wanted to touch on healthcare related. I see that there is some movement now in the Senate to revisit a state exchange under the Affordable Care Act. It's been a few years since we had to talk about that since uh, the state went ahead and did the federal exchange. But what are what would be an advantage to doing a state exchange? I mean, a state-based exchange would allow for more flexibility between Medicaid and the exchange to increase enrollment. So you could have a more targeted approach to folks who don't have insurance. Under the federal exchange, it isn't as targeted. Under the state exchange, it would be. Uh, you can use a, a 1332 waiver to create reinsurance program to bring some uh, federal funds and then lower premiums. And so as an organization, the Committee of Protect Healthcare absolutely supports anything that can get more coverage, more health care for lower costs for more people. There's really no downside. And so uh, while this has been talked about, it certainly hasn't been introduced. And you have to obviously see the details. But it sounds like something we should all want in our state. It will bring down costs. It will increase uh, access. Now, what happened the biggest obstacles about depending on a federal exchange for health and dental coverage? Because it seems that the majority of states do depend on this federal central exchange. Yeah, I think it's, you know, the federal exchange, it's less work for the states, right? I mean, you don't have to create the legislation, you don't have to file for the waiver. But the downside is that you know, you can't target as much uh, and you can't target the uninsured or the underinsured as, as closely as you can if you have a state-based exchange. So it just, 
provides that added benefit and even incremental increases in folks who have insurance, who have coverage is, is really critically important to those individuals. I remember 10 years ago when the debate over whether we should have a federal or a state exchange were, was hot and heavy and Republicans just in general kind of recoiled at the idea that they would be embracing the Affordable Care Act to such an extent that they would vote for a state exchange. What do you think has changed in the attitude of lawmakers in the last 10 years? Well, one, I think we have a you know democratic control of both houses of the legislature, so that's one part. I think the other part, I mean, we saw what happened in 2018 when Republicans in Washington very openly uh, tried to repeal the ACA. It was my birthday in 2017. The House voted and passed the repeal. We remember the three Republican senators, uh, most famously Senator McCain with the thumbs down when the Senate did not go along. But the backlash in 2018 in the election uh, was was pretty swift and pretty severe for Republicans who voted uh, to gut the ACA. Professionally, I work in a, in a very poor county, and out of 48,000 residents in my county, 8,000 of those folks have uh, expanded Medicaid under the ACA. This was passed by you know then Senate Minority Leader, now Governor Whitmer, working with uh, the former governor, Rick Snyder, uh, to expand Medicaid in the state of Michigan. Um, and this is just one more piece that we can do to get more people covered. I think it's clear the ACA initially, there was a lot of confusion. There were a lot of lot of messaging put up by uh, opponents, uh, particularly Republicans, about what it would be. And the proof was in the pudding. Once once it's there and people see the benefits of, you know, kids up to age 26 staying in their parents' insurance and no lifetime caps, um, the expanded Medicaid piece and how that's benefited communities. Once all that is seen and people have that coverage, uh, they're not willing to give it up. And, and I think I think this likely would pass in, with some bipartisan support. I think folks in districts where uh, it might be a little more challenging for re-election will feel the pressure that they shouldn't vote against expanding health care, that they should actually vote for it. Your organization has also been involved in promoting the Prescription Drug Affordability Board legislation, which will be a five a governor-appointed board. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you're anticipating in terms of the fate of this legislation? Well, we're still hopeful. I think what we have a week left. Um, this passed through the Senate uh, on on basically partisan lines, although Senator Heisinger was a pass, uh, so didn't vote against it. Uh, Republican in, in a tough district, and this now is in the, the the fate of this bill is in the House, and we're we're hopeful that Speaker Tate will get this in, into committee or perhaps on discharge get it to the House floor. Uh, we're confident that lawmakers in the House will pass this. The governor did say in her what's next address at the end of the summer, heading into this uh, uh, this legislature, that this was one of the critical pieces she was looking to get passed. Uh, they already passed the codification of ACA in the state. They are now uh, almost uh, have the Reproductive Health Act to the governor's desk. And this is the last piece of that three-legged stool that she really leaned into that we're supporting. I know a big part of this legislation is the upper payment limits that this board would be able to negotiate and put on a drug price. Now, it seems that the handful of states that already have a PDAB, none of them have actually issued any of these upper payment limits. What does that tell you? Is the reason they're not doing it is because of the risk of commerce related issues? I, frankly, I, I don't. You will have to, I guess, talk to the speaker or talk to others who are involved in getting this to committee or get us the floor why they're not doing it. We think they should be. Um, you know, this is legislation that uh, has been passed in a handful of states. Colorado named the drugs that they're going to be 
talking about. They just haven't gotten to the point of actually setting those payment limits. But we see rate setting in other aspects of healthcare, and so rate setting works. I mean, there's you know the the governor did sign a package of bills regulating uh, pharmacy benefit managers last year that increases transparency. That's critically important. We need to know where the costs are. We need to know what the costs are so we know once it gets to consumers, well, you know, why they're paying what they're paying. But in the end, the reason drug prices are so high is the greed of big pharma. They just, you know, have massive prices. We've seen it recently with Paxlovid. Paxlovid, you know, now they want to charge people nearly $1,400 for a, for a course of Paxlovid. My patients on blood thinners, my patients on inhalers, who I, over the last 20 years, have seen routinely coming in, suffering a crisis, particularly with inhalers, uh, because they ran out of the drug. They just couldn't afford it. Um, as, a, as a practicing physician, uh, particularly in a, in a poorer area, I, I see something like this. I see a PDAD being so critically important so we can provide folks those care. So we'll just keep pushing uh, on the house so we can get this thing out there and, and understanding that once they get a pass, the governor has said she supports it. Her staff has said they support it. And we are hopeful it'll get to that point. Where do you think the cost savings come from from a PTAB? Because it would seem like if if the, the patient isn't now paying for the cost, who is paying for the cost? Is it just spread out among all the other um, policy subscribers who are with their respective insurance company, everyone's now paying a little bit more because somebody's paying a lot less? I guess maybe if you could rephrase the question, because in my experience, the patients are paying more. That's why people come in with empty inhalers gasping because they couldn't afford the inhaler or people who right. couldn't get their have, blood thinner. Yeah, but if you have a drug board that then artificially lowers the cost so that people can afford something that is outrageously expensive, who, who then picks up those additional costs? Is that everybody else? Is that everybody else who's a policyholder from that person's insurance company paying a little bit more so they can pay a lot less? Well, no, the cost, that upper payment limit would apply to folks, you know, irrespective of kind of how they were insured. And that upper payment limit would follow through the entire supply chain. So like in the end, Big Pharma is the one who is, uh, you know, jacking up these prices once these things come to market. Um, who is using sort of orphan drug law policies to introduce drugs for small numbers of people that end up expanding either either that patient population expands, which we hope it does because people are surviving longer because of these drugs, or because they just expand the number of indications for the particular drug. They keep the patent longer because of the laws uh, that they've worked, or they or they tweak a little piece of it and they get another patent to keep it even longer, or they buy off generics which they have done on numerous occasions, so they don't make a, a cheaper version. In the end, it's going to hold Big Pharma to task because they're, they're, they're prioritizing profits over actually getting the drug to patients who need it. I've, I've never quite understood the purpose of developing drugs that are life-saving and then pricing them to the point where no one can afford them. It doesn't help anybody. I've heard that it's the R&D, the research and development at Big Pharma, that's going to suffer cuts because- We've heard be that. Yeah. Well, we've heard that because that's what they are saying. But the reality is the taxpayer pays for the vast majority of kind of nascent drug R&D. It, it happens at universities. It happens at NIH. The other part of this is there's there's clear evidence out there. I think the most recent study I saw out of the top 10 big pharma companies, seven of the top 10 in, in 2022, I believe in 2019, it was nine out of the top 10, spent more money on marketing than they did on research and development. You know, so when you see those Super Bowl uh, drug ads, when, uh, you know, you have uh, drug reps going to doctor's offices or 
or you know, providing them with things or, or trips or what have you, that's where their money is going. It isn't to R&D. So it is a talking point and it's a scare tactic, but it's just not based in reality. I find it quite freaky that we're already in the month of November. I'm not sure about you. But what is thinking about what happens next when the legislature adjourns and we start to talk about next year, what is a policy that you want to see enter the conversation that isn't being touched at all right now? I mean, I, I do think creating a state-based exchange is, is probably the next thing they're going to tackle. And we we absolutely welcome that. You know, as an advocacy organization, we're not actually a policy shop. So we are we are interested in all parties and, and, and we are active members of coalitions in Michigan, but in, in many other states supporting these policies. So, you know, we will we will hear from lawmakers about these exchanges. If perchance PDEB doesn't quite make it through uh, in the next week, that doesn't mean it goes away. We're certainly not going away. We're going to keep pushing for this. Um, we think it's a critically important bill. We, we know that it's very popular. We know 80 plus percent of Michiganders support the Prescription Drug Affordability Board. And so we'll just keep pushing on that end. And then just a quick little question before we end. How much time do you spend as an organizer and how much time do you spend as an emergency room physician? It's probably close to 50-50, maybe, maybe a little more on the clinical side. I'm, I'm a, a late career provider. I'm an emergency doc, so I do shift work. So I do a lot of my shifts on weekends and nights and a lot of my advocacy during the daytime hours and sometimes sleep. Uh, sleep is what what suffers. So, you know, I, I probably spend 20, 24 or so hours a week on clinical medicine, uh, probably a similar amount of time doing advocacy. Uh, my kids are grown, so they don't really want me around that much anyway. So got to got to fill the time. And, and I find the advocacy to be such a great outlet. The reality is physicians are advocates. We advocate for our patients on a daily basis. Most of us bang our heads against the wall trying to circumvent the the uh, the challenges our patients face affording drugs or getting any other aspects of care. So it's it's sort of a relief to be able to be on this side and try to impact policy that can affect thousands of patients rather than just doing it on a case by case basis and and you know getting frustrated frequently. Dr. Rob Davidson with the Committee to Protect Healthcare. Thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Kyle. us now for our last segment of the MERS Monday podcast is Warren Carpenter, the previous 9th Congressional District Chair for the Michigan GOP. On October 31st, MERS reported that Warren was part of two efforts currently in development to remove state Republican Party Chair Christina Caramo from her post. Originally, Warren fundraised for Chair Caramo, but is now making the case that the state party is less focused on organizing and voter mobilization efforts ahead of 2024 and is, instead, Instead, not moving the ball forward and is more zoomed in on what he describes as phony schemes. Warren, thank you so much for joining us today on the MERS Monday podcast. I was wondering if you could summarize to us and our listeners what you're presently hoping to bring heightened awareness to when it comes to the state GOP and its financial activities. Yeah, well, good morning and and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, this... Uh... I've been living this for about the last two months, since sometime back in September, September 8th, I believe was the call, where I was asked to to give information or to, to assist on the Mackinac Policy Conference and, and kind of landing that 
that event. Up until this time, I was a pretty ardent supporter of Christina's and uh, learned some information on, on a couple of calls that got me digging into further things with finances and, and, and the overall running of the event. That snowballed into bank statements that gave me information about very questionable payments, which led me to researching for missed deadlines for both uh, Mertz and FEC. And, you know, all the way up until just Friday, there's this new scheme that they want to uh, default on the line of credit because the building is an asset uh, that is held for the line of credit, therefore uh, forcing a sale of the building proceeds. I mean, everything is just, you, you can't even imagine this. The things that that I've kind of you know been exposed to in a, in a in a two month time. It's um, you know we're working with attorneys. I formed a I formed an organization called the Whistleblower Fund Inc. in order to pay for uh, the legal costs of putting together the filing and taking uh, witness affiant testimony from people with inside the administration and uh, and members of state committee. The reason that we're doing it this way is because I believe and, you know, even the attorneys have said, you know, that there's there's legal liability possible in so many of these instances. And uh, and when I say possible, I mean, it's because I'm not a prosecuting attorney. You know, I'm not you know, I'm not an investigator. But what we have done is taken taken affiant testimony and then match that up against against criminality and and are putting this in a, into a package for, uh, you know, for that to be presented possibly in the near future. Or it might be helpful for our listeners to hear a little bit about your background. You were with Christina Caramo at the ground floor as she was as she was launching her Secretary of State bid, weren't you? Uh, no, you know what? It's crazy. I, I didn't meet Christina until August of 2022, after the convention of the convention of the 88 is what you know you could call it, where where 88 um, percent of the the vote kind of voted to reinstitute McCombs delegate. So that was my first kind of introduction to Christina personally. Um, I was a supporter from what I had heard early as I was supporting all uh, Republican candidates that kind of made it through the primary process. And um, I met someone from her campaign who said that they needed some funds to close out the the race, which is, you know, <clears throat> which is what every candidate needs at the end. So uh, I uh, signed on to throw a fundraiser for her. And a couple of weeks later, <clears throat> we put a fundraiser together. I made some personal phone calls. And we raised 20 grand for her uh, at an event at my, at my golf club. And, and after that point in time, you know, uh, I got to meet her and, and we had some discussions and uh, we worked uh, all the way up until the, the AB counting board at TCF. I was at TCF that night trying to assist in the poll challenging process. And so that's kind of where I met her. I've only been back in politics really since about that time. I started getting back involved mid-summer, maybe. My wife told me to get off the couch and, and do something instead of just complaining. So so I, I went, you know, the delegate routes on and so forth. After she lost the Secretary of State race, um, I was one of the very first calls she made when she was going to run for chair. Uh, and her and Michael Labadee, uh, actually, Michael Labadee called me and said, you know, I've, I have Christina on the line. She needs to, you know, ask you a question and, you know, she needs to start doing this. And she asked for $1,000 to start the 527, the uh, Karamo Leadership Fund um, that she used as the vehicle to fundraise for the chair race. And then, uh, and then was asked to run her floor operation for the said chair race at that point in time. Just to confirm, it was really in preparation for the Mackinac Leadership Conference where you became most skeptical, correct? Correct. 
there were things along the way. Yeah, there were things along the way early in the, in, in the administration. So, you know, she was going around telling people that she was going to raise $50 million. I told like her and like people like in her orbit, like, stop saying that, like, that's ludicrous. And like, it, it's just, it shows that you're, that you don't, you don't have a grasp on like, what's really going on. And then she made some she made some hiring choices that, that at the time I thought were bad because the information I was getting was siloed. And uh, and so, you know, we we put together a training for her to kind of help her see like this is what an administration should look out. These are the responsibilities. And we went to prior chairs and co-chairs of administrations to get this information for her and like talk with people that had like actual institutional knowledge. And uh, we brought her in for the training and then like she took it, like took that training and we were supposed to follow up with like training staff and then she poo-pooed it. And that was another thing kind of set off red flags. And then when I got the call for Mackinac about a week prior, they were called to kind of spearhead this thing at the end. And I, I knew then that like, why did you wait so long? You know, they had terminated Lois almost a month prior, six weeks prior to them reaching out to me, like what had been done in that time that you're calling me two weeks before the event? I mean, it was at that point in time, I was I told them even prior to the call for Mackinac that I'm going to decide whether or not I'm going to do this. And, you know, I had some I had some caveats, right, that there was no sacred cows, that, you know, I got final call on stuff and that every decision like I, I had to know everything. You had to tell me every single thing for me to make a, a judgment on whether I wanted to move forward with this. Um, just because, you know, at this point in time, I, my support had really had waned. And uh, and after I found out what I found out, I, I, I actively tried to convince the other people in my district and leadership of what I saw. And um, and I was even poo pooed there. So do you feel that members of the state GOP, the everyday members, the volunteers, et cetera, do you feel that they're being exploited? And if so, how so? Yeah, a hundred percent. Because here's the issue, right? She was elected by two thousand delegates, you know, a, a body of two thousand four hundred something delegates, that ultimately put forward hundred and seven people to run a state committee, and then one chair to run them. And, and with that as being the top of the pyramid, what you have to also understand is at the bottom of that pyramid are two point five million Republican voters, right? That turn out and that religiously believe in the values of the platform. And that's why they're Republicans. And that's what they were expecting that they elected. Now, I think it's a grift because, you know, in August 10th, they had $35,000 in the bank account. And that's combined of all accounts, not even getting into Mackinac and, and, and how it was ran. I mean, that's not a political operation. You know, we're going to clearly, you know, clearly show that at this point in time, you know, many, many, many administrations, you know, would have 10 to $12 million in the bank account ready to be spent. Right. And that's not what uh, that's not what's transpiring. We have an election that is literally tomorrow. Right. And I have seen nothing from the party. So it's not that it's not that the delegates should be upset. It's not that the state committee should be upset. It's that the everyday person, the two point five million people who hold conservative ideas and, and count on the party for data, for get out the vote, for poll challenging, for information, for support for local candidates, municipalities, mayors, school school board members, trustees. OK, these people rely on a party. Their county parties, yes, but 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 more globally, the state party is that big spend resource that's there to backstop. And and that's who's being cheated. I mean, this is this is this has far wide reaching implications when you start thinking about, you know, the Democrats being a well-oiled political machine and, you know, and political machines needing two fuels, both people and money. You know, we are sitting in the parking lot and can't find the keys. 
and there was an election in a day. That's that's the saddest part about this. And that's what I, you know, I hope people come away with understanding. Do you believe there's going to be some criminal charges in relation to what's going on in the Republican Party right now? If you're asking me personally, I would say I do. Uh, I do believe there's criminality, but I am not the prosecutor. So all I can do is put together all the data and information um, into a into a complaint and then and then have that brought forward uh, when that's all completed by, you know, by attorneys. That is that is something that we're working on actively at currently. I mean, you could say that. I mean, as soon as you saw how they were trying to fund Mackinac, you you realize that there could be something wrong here. I immediately I, I immediately called the general counsel for the district caucus and had him speak with two other members. What people have to understand is that they ran Mackinac through the federal account. OK, that's a hard dollar account. That is people's that goes against people's minimums. Right. Or, or maximum mm-hmm. donation limits. Yeah. And, and with that, there has to be very specific guidelines on how that money is used and spent. OK. And the implications of just that alone with some of these things that have transpired, whether it be uh, the, the payment for Jim Caviezel through Jim Copas's wife as an in-kind donation that they said was a loan, which still hasn't been paid back. So therefore is an in-kind donation because the check went directly from a trust into into the account of the Catholic speakers organizations. So it's like picking up a tab at like a restaurant for an event, right? If someone says, no, I got it, it's an in-kind. If they say, no, it's a loan, then it must be paid back immediately, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how that works. You can't you can't defer that. That's not the way the FEC works, right? If The, the irony in this is that Dinesh D'Souza went, went to prison for two years, okay, for FEC violations in excess of $25,000, Jim Copas right now with this with this in-kind donation of $110,000. Now, they don't have a filing due because they only, they only file twice a year this year. They don't have a filing due till January. But that's got to be paid back prior to that. Otherwise, it's an in-kind that puts him above the, the, the contribution limits by, you know, by what, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 grand? I mean, it's lunacy. What these people are doing, they don't they don't understand what's going what's going on. There's employment violations, right, of, of how they hired staff. 1099 paid them. I spoke about this in Macomb. Um, you know, and then and then there's you know, there's also a check that that on an FEC filing, someone said that this check was ascribed to them in their name uh, in an FEC filing. But they testified that they never received this check. So, I mean, even if it's a filing error. Like, you know, where's the and if you look at the FEC, the complaints and what's going on with the party missed its Mertz filing again. What do you think are the intentions here? Do you think it's greed? Do you think people are trying to get rich quick out of the party? What 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 is the purpose for all of this is my question, if you had to make a personal theory. Well, so, I, you know, for me personally, I can say that gross negligence is enough. Right. If it's just sheer incompetence, this is a disaster. Um, you know, you have these people, but now you start layering in some of these other these other controversies. Right. Like like a no bid contract to Joe Moss right out of Ottawa County for eighty eight thousand dollars where no one can see the receipts under an NDA. OK, hold on. Time out. The bylaws state that the budget committee is in control of all expenditures. And the fact that the budget committee cannot see access to any receipts or expenditures and they're being made by only two people at the top. And when I say two people at the top, I say that's a revolving door as well. They've gotten rid of two treasurers. They're on their third treasurer and their third budget committee chairman. OK, 
That only happens when people are spinning around and siloing information to keep enough people in the dark about anything that could be potentially criminal. All right, that's they're, they're operating a completely separate financial structure outside of the bylaws of MRP. When you start looking at the good neighbors, it's, it's a informational data uh, database catch. They're asking counties to provide all of their lists into this, uh, this program that is owned, right, by John LaDuca. John LaDuca sits on the Ottawa County Executive Committee right with Joel Studebaker and Moss and all these people. So when you start when you start looking at the the nexus of, you know, Ken Byers involvement with all these things, it's it looks like they're paying a very specific group of people and at the same time you have Ottawa Impact that are creating a 501c4 structure that's got a that's got a PAC structure connected to it and then ultimately the idea is a C3, right? When you can get the trifecta of those in another organization it's the political structure that they were talking about in that podcast I sent you about Christina's new organization out in Nevada. And in this podcast, uh, and Christina is the president of this nonpartisan 501c4 pending called Unauthorized. Uh, the website is unauthorized.one, O-N-E, one. And what they are, and, and in the podcast, you can look up the gentleman, Matt Mack, look him up on Rumble and look at the Flyover Conservative podcast and all these other ones where they openly talk about helping elect grassroots Democrats. Now, listen, that's not a problem for me, right? You want to be an organization that does that, but it, it's a problem for me when the president organization is the chairman of my state party. And what they're talking about is the same thing. In one of the podcasts, this gentleman actually says this. I want you to listen to this out. These are the, This guy's also a felon. He embezzled $215,000 from Northrop Grumman. It's a federal, it's a federal thing. He, he spent, he spent two years in a federal prison for this, right? All the people around her are criminals. It's crazy. So this guy says, Frank Gaffney's got this security one C3. He he says on this podcast, listen, and if you want a tax, a tax deduction, you can you call us and we'll call uh, Frank Gaffney's 501C3 and you can donate the money to them and then they'll send it to us. This is the guy who's the executive director of this other organization that's trying to build up the similar structure to what's going on in Ottawa, so on and so forth. So I think it's a data collect. I think it's a grift. I think that these people are trying to start a consultancy right? They, they, they want to be the people that put forward the next candidates and they're going to burn your party down in the process. Listen, all the while, they're openly in, in this other organization, by the way, supporting Robert Kennedy Jr. Okay. Like on every podcast, this guy that runs this thing for Christina, which she still is the president, right? I checked the, I checked the Nevada filing. She's still on as the president, right? And, and I think I sent you some of those documents. If you want to post those, you can. I mean, th this is what it is. So when you say like, okay, gross negligence, yes. And the party local, yes. But like, it's so much bigger. These people with, with the way that they interact, the lack of transparency, it's absolutely nuts. It's, it's incredible. It's, it, it's the most, I, I don't know. When, when your attorney says it sounds like a spy novel, and he wouldn't believe me unless everyone that he talked to under Afghan testimony was saying the same thing. There's definitely a lot to think about here, but what is something that you would want to give the everyday listener, the everyday observer to keep their eyes out for as you move forward with assembling your complaint? You know, I think that that, that is something that is going to be on the timeline of the attorneys. While that's taking place, we are running an effort right now within the MRP uh, structure of the state committee um, to change a bylaw to lower the threshold to vacate from 75% to 60. Um, we have the signatures uh, for this petition. We're going to be gathering those signatures in the next two weeks. I encourage people to get involved, find their county, find the information to find out who your state committee person is. 
And to tell that state committee person that you do not agree with what's being done in their names as Republicans across the state and apply and to apply pressure from the bottom up, you are the voice, you are the body. I expect phone calls to go to state committee members to let them know that, that you're concerned about what's going on in their party and the absenteeism of the party one day from an election. Is the overall fear here going into the 2024 elections, is it that someone's going to make a contribution to the party in one capacity or another, and that money isn't going to be used on elections? It's going to be used for this this kind of kaleidoscope of different intentions that you have described for us today. Yeah, it's it's everything but the work. Okay, it's everything but the work. And and if there was any hope or shred of people actually formulating a plan that was going to get Republicans elected and support the party platform and principles, I'd be behind it. I swear. I swear. And, you know, so much so that, like, I, I, my wife said, like, you know, you can't do this stuff anymore because of what it takes away from our family and so forth. And I said, I understand that. And and she said, but you can finish this. She said, you have to finish this. And so that's kind of the drive in which it pushes me forward is because this doesn't just affect people that are that are hardcore activists. It's going to trickle down into every single mailbox, right? Every single ballot that goes out. And that's the scariest part of it for me. And that's the part that I that I that I hope people understand. Warren Carpenter, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning with us uh, to talk about your concerns with the state GOP. Thanks a lot, you guys. I really appreciate your time. And that is going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. Thank you to former U.S. Rep Peter Meyer, as well as Executive Director Dr. Rob Davidson of the Committee to Protect Healthcare. Additionally, thank you to Warren Carpenter, the past 9th Congressional District Chair of the State GOP. As always, I'd like to give a tremendous thanks to MERS editor Kyle Malin. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Basher, Audio and Okemos. Thanks to him for putting this audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. Now that you're-